0: At North Point Community Church, we are passionate about helping our community move toward a life fully devoted to Jesus. And we hope this message helps you do that. Thank you for tuning in. All right. Hey, good morning, church. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, I know my mom is watching here, so I want to say happy Mother's Day to her. She raised three great kids and one fantastic child, so uh, enjoy that for my siblings. Also, happy Mother's Day to my wife, who has our daughter and puts up with this man child. So uh, moms, you guys are the best. Um, Hey, uh, I I need some feedback from you guys here this morning. I need somebody to tell me what they think are the odds of winning the Powerball lottery. One in, I heard I saw zero, like it ain't happening. I saw zero out there. What else, give me some guesses, one in 100 million, one in a million, okay. Okay, here's what we've got. Uh, The odds of winning the Powerball are one in 292.2 million. Yeah, and if you really like to lose, uh, the mega millions is one in 302.5 million. All right, now compare that with the idea that you have a one in 50 million chance of being bitten by a snake. All right, so we know two things. Winning the lottery is hard, and snakes are the worst, okay? So we can take that away very easily here. What if I told you a guy named Stefan Mandel won the lottery 14 times? 14 times. He is either extremely lucky, or he took advantage of a really crazy opportunity here. Uh, Stefan Mandel is a Romanian economist, He dreamed of leaving his communist country where he was only making $88 a month to support his family. And what he did is he found a mathematical opportunity to win the lottery in Romania and as a result, bribe his way out of the country. But he didn't just stop there. He took his formula into other places as well. And what he would do is he would wait until the lottery would be three times higher than the total cost of all the, per- all the ticket purchasing combinations. So, uh, for instance, a lottery that would require six numbers, all between the range of one through 40, has a possibility of 3,838,380 possible winning tickets. And Stephen Mandel would go with investors and buy all of those possibilities guaranteeing himself a win. And with the jackpot being close to 11 half million or three times the amount of the purchase rate, him and his investors were also guaranteed a profit. And so what he did is he partnered with people all over the world and in several different countries, he won the lottery, including right here in the United States where he won the Virginia lottery. 14 times he won the lottery. He was investigated by the IRS The FBI and the CIA all for fraud and they found absolutely no wrongdoing in his methods. But as a result of Stefan Mandel, the lotteries eventually upped their prices, changed the amount of tickets you can buy and adjusted because the lottery always wins, right? So, but all to say, after taxes, Stefan Mandel became a multi-millionaire all because he took advantage of the opportunity before him. We're working through our way on our old school teaching series here together. Uh, We're looking at passages in the Old Testament, ideas, principles, uh, that they may be old, but they're still true. They still work for us. And so uh, we're looking at them to see what is it that happened back then that we can apply to our lives today. And we know one of the important concepts of understanding these passages or these ideas or these principles is to understand the context. And what we mean by context uh, is to read the entirety of the verses that it may be around, the chapters, the book, but also the culture the history, what was happening then to find out, hey, what was it that this verse or this principle meant in the Old Testament, and then how can we apply it to us today? It's really, really helpful. If you missed any of these, uh, YouTube, Facebook, North Point app, website, go check these out. There's some great, great things uh, that you can join in. This morning, we are going to jump into the book of Esther The book of Esther, now about a year and a half, two years ago, uh, we did a deep dive into Esther as a church, so if you missed that or just wanna catch up, that's a great, great thing to spend some time watching. Um, But this morning, we're gonna talk about Esther, and Esther is basically the story of God saving his people from a genocide during their time in captivity. We see that God, throughout the book of Esther, places people at the right times and the right places so that they could have the opportunity to be a part of his plan those people just have to to join in to what God is already doing. One of the unique things about the book of Esther is that God is actually not mentioned by name in the entire book, which is like super weird, right? Like if you read the Bible, you expect to see God on like every single page and so to have an entire book of the Bible where they don't even mention God like feels a little weird. But the cool part about it is God is actually moving in the background of the story, the entire Time that Esther is written in a way that it it makes you look for God, it makes you seek out the things that He is doing. It's really a brilliant idea, and that you notice God moving even when He's not mentioned by name. See, we recognize that God is always moving in our lives, just like we're going to see in Esther, that Jesus does incredible big moments in our lives but he also has these small every single day moments. And we've just got to join in to be a part of his plan because he can do some incredible, incredible stuff with us. It's why uh, here at North Point as a staff, we're pushing this idea of share your story. Like if you were uh, in here a little early today on the countdown, you saw um, Harrison's video as he began to talk about, hey, uh, I grew up and my faith was my parents, but now that I'm getting older, like I'm recognizing that I need Jesus and and I got to own this and I got to go to church and I got to read and I got to study and and I got to move and I got to do what God wants me to do. And it's this ownership of faith in Harrison's story and man if you saw that I know you were encouraged by that because Harrison is not only a great guy uh, but that story is so incredibly compelling and so we push yeah there he is right we push share your story hi Harrison and the reason that we do it is because we recognize sharing your story is going to do two things number one it's going to make you recognize that Jesus is moving in your life like even if it's not some big moment that's going on right now, he's working in the small moments in your life and, and we, you know, we recognize that when we stop and think, hey, what is my story? And the second thing it does is, is it encourages other people. Like hearing somebody else talk about how Jesus is working in their life is always encouraging. It's always a thing. So, man, we encourage you guys, uh, take some time, fill that out. It's just a five-minute video. In fact, if you fill it out today and send it in, I will buy you Big B. I think it's that important, and I love coffee that much, that I will send it your way to do. So share your story here. Uh, In the book of Esther, now, we'll get back to that. The first three chapters, we're not going to read all of them today. We're just going to summarize some of it and then get to our passage here. Uh, But the first three chapters really set the stage for God's big move. And we see that he does that by setting up all of these little moves in the background as well. It starts out by telling us the story uh, of King Ahasuerus, right? I have to like read that every time when I'm reading that. King Ahasuerus. Now we know him historically, if you're a history buff, uh, as Xerxes, King Xerxes. So uh, if you know anything about Persian history or you just like movies, and so you saw like the 300 movies that came out, That's the guy, okay? That's King Xerxes that we're talking about here. Uh, And in this uh, book of Esther, we see that he throws this huge party that lasts for months. In fact, uh, historians would probably say that this is his planning, his military planning uh, for going into Sparta and Thermopylae and like all the things that he's doing there. And at the end of this big military planning meeting, they spend a few days partying. And what do they do? They just get drunk. That's what happens. They get drunk drunk and in his drunkenness king xerxes is talking about his wife and he's telling all of his guys hey she's so pretty man you've got to see my wife and so what does he do he calls her in and he calls her to come and be on a display for all those party guests and when i say he on display what i think that means if we can kind of read in between the lines here a little bit uh, is that he's calling his wife to come in naked and show off her beauty right not a good move, husbands. Can I just tell you that? Like, don't try and throw a party. you be like, hey, sweetheart. Would like, don't do it, okay? I'm just gonna tell you. Uh, he, it's a horrible, horrible idea. And the reason I think that he's doing that uh, is because the queen actually refuses to come in. And I think she refuses to come in because I think this is probably not the first time that she's been called in. And I think she's tired of being objectified. So she refuses to come in, which is a huge deal to ignore the king's command. And because she refuses to come in, now all the advisors who are at the party are going, well, king, you know you gotta get rid of her now, right? Because if the queen doesn't listen to the king, then none of the wives in the kingdom will listen to their husbands, and we can't have that, right? Horrible advisors, horrible advice, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He banishes her from the kingdom, right? Like horrible, horrible advice, But yet God is still moving in this. So what happens next? The advisors say, well, king, now that you're a single man, like, we've gotta fix that for you. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go all throughout the kingdom and we're gonna find tons of beautiful young women and we're gonna make you the bachelor. It's gonna be great. They're all gonna come in. We're gonna spend one year prepping these women. We're gonna train them. We're gonna beautify them. We're gonna do everything we can do for you so that they can have one night with the king which means exactly what you think it means. One night with the king. And whichever one you like best, king, will become queen, and the rest of them will just be in your, your harem, right? Which is like his mistresses on the side kind of thing. And so the king agrees to this. Horrible advice. And yet God is still moving in this. Now, one of the women that is picked to be a part of this beauty pageant on steroids is a young Jewish girl named Esther, who at the time is being raised by her cousin, Mordecai, and we'll get to him in a second. Uh, But Esther, and, and being a part of this harem here, she finds favor with the leader of all these women. And so he gives her like the best advice, the best training, the best stuff, so that she has the best chance of winning in her one night with the king. And this whole thing just feels gross. Am I right? Like it's just gross as we think about it. Like you feel uneasy. And especially if you're a young Jewish girl who like recognizes this is not what God wants. This is not God's way of doing things. But yet, in spite of all of this, God is still moving. So what happens? The king picks Esther, and she becomes the new queen. Congratulations, you've got the final rose. You've gone from rags to riches, from uh, poverty to prestige, from a harem to head of state. Like, woo, you have now made it. And it's around this time that her cousin, Mordecai, is sitting at the city gate. And Mordecai overhears a few guys plotting to assassinate the king. And because he knows Esther, he's able to send word to her and she has the king's guard look into it. And sure enough, they find out about the assassination attempt and they stop it. Woo, way to go, Mordecai, you're the man. Here's the thing, all of this stuff is not some crazy coincidence. Like God is moving in the background of this the entire time. He's taking the choices of the king and others and he is using it to position Esther and Mordecai in the right place at the right time. Look, nothing happens outside of God's control. We may not get it, we may not like it, we may not understand it, we may not even notice it, but God is always moving. We continue to read on. uh, We see that along comes a guy named Haman. And Haman is one of the king's top advisors. And to be honest, he is pretty full of himself. Like, nobody likes Haman more than Haman, all right? So one day he goes out, and by decree, everybody is to bow down to Haman. And so he goes out, and everybody does, except Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't bow down. And the only reason that Mordecai gives for not bowing down is simply because he's Jewish, Now, maybe it was religious piety. Maybe uh, Haman's ancestors were mean to Mordecai's ancestors, or maybe Mordecai knew that Haman hated Jewish people, or like whatever it was, Mordecai doesn't give us a ton of information other than to say he just didn't bow down because he was Jewish. And this doesn't sit well with Haman. Like, Haman really likes himself, and so he is really bothered by this. In fact, he gets so mad that he goes to the king and he convinces the king that all the Jewish people are bad. And that if the king will allow him, he will pay the king if he will let him go out and exterminate all the Jewish people. Not just Mordecai, but all the Jews in the kingdom. Basically, Mordecai is trying to buy his own genocide here. And the crazy thing is the king actually agrees. The edict goes out, the country goes into shock, and Haman and the king go drinking again. Like if you read the book of Esther, there is like so much sex and violence and drinking in there. Like Game of Thrones would be proud of Esther, right? Like they're thrilled with all the things that are happening in here. Mordecai sees this edict that goes out and immediately he goes into mourning. He's worried, he's troubled, he's mourning and he sends a note to his queen cousin that basically says, hey look, you have got to go talk to your husband or we are all dead. And Esther is incredibly hesitant to go talk to the king, because if he doesn't receive her, then by law, Esther is to be put to death, and it's been like a month or more since the king has summoned her, so she's not really feeling it here, like, look, I understand that, like, I pop into Rick's office all of the time, and I'm like, hey, I got a question, and all this other stuff, and, and he always has the same reaction, it's, yeah. Like every time I pop in, right? Like every single time, question and I'm gone. And it could be five minutes and I'm in again. He hasn't locked his door yet. But he does this all the time. And here's the thing. Rick might want to kill me for doing this, but he's actually never threatened to do it. But for Esther, on the other hand, if she pops in and the king's like, who are you again? She's done. That's it. And so she does not like her odds here. And when you hear that as Mordecai, can you imagine how he feels? Can you imagine what Mordecai's going through here? Like your world is crumbling before you and nobody cares. The people that you invested in, the people that you loved and cared for are MIA when you need them. We've been there, right? Like we've stood up for things that we thought were right and recognized that, well, we're standing alone. <laughs> Maybe you got a diagnosis or, or a pink slip or somebody hurt you and you've just never felt this alone before. I have to think that Mordecai was telling himself, like, I can't believe I saved this king. I can't believe, if I'd have just ignored those guys, like, my problem would have been solved. What about Esther? I took that girl in, and now when I need her, where's she at? Where's Esther at now? He's gotta be hurt. He's gotta be angry. In fact, I think when we're gonna look at this passage here today, you can feel that in his reply to the queen, queen, and, and that's our passage this morning here. Uh, It's this old school teaching. It's old, but it's true. They're facing horrible odds, impending death. The doomsday clock has started. Nobody wants to help. And Mordecai and Esther have this exchange in chapter four, verse 12. It says this. It says, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself in the king's palace that you will escape any more than all the other Jews. I love that Mordecai points out to Esther saying, hey, look, you're not safe. (laughs) You're a part of God's chosen people and that even if you survive this upcoming genocide day, like recognize somebody's gonna figure out your secret. The king already got rid of one life. Who's to say he doesn't want season two of The Bachelor to come around anyway? Esther's in the same sinking ship as everybody else. See, the truth is none of us, none of us are immune from harm. Sickness, death, financial ruin, accidents, abuse, injustice, it can and does affect all of us in some way. You cannot be protected from everything. You can't be protected by money or a nice neighborhood or influential friends forever. If your hope is what you can achieve or what you own, then you have no hope at all Mordecai knows this and so he gives just this amazing nugget of truth to Esther next year in verse 14 he says hey for if you keep silent at this time relief and deliverance will rise for the jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish And Mordecai is telling Esther, hey, look, God's plans and his promises won't be stopped. God's plans and his promises won't be stopped. But if she doesn't join into them, she is going to miss out. In the midst of pain and fear and hopelessness, Mordecai actually shows faith. He knows that God will not let all of his chosen people be killed. He knows that God is powerful. He knows that God is true to his word. He knows that God cannot be stopped. And he knows the choice is up to Esther if she trusts God or not. See, if you have Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, like you have a lot of great promises from God. Like he promises to be with you always. He promises uh, an eternity with him. He promises that his church will not be destroyed. He promises to care for us in our every need. He promises truth and grace and forgiveness. He promises to get rid of the evil in this world one day. The choice is up to us if we trust him or not. And if we trust him to join in to that plan. See, God doesn't need Esther. God doesn't need Esther to protect his people, but he gives her the opportunity to join in. There's incredible risk, an incredible reward in trusting God's plan. Like the risk is that we don't always have control. The risk is that there could be pain. The risk is that we may not get all of the answers. The reward is that God is in control, that God is always with us, and that God cannot be stopped. Mordecai ends his advice here at the end of 14. He says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time? Is this, man? Mordecai's reminding Esther, hey, look, you're not queen by chance. God knew a new queen would be chosen. He knew Haman's dangerous pride. He knew the king's dangerous edicts. So he worked in the background the entire time to raise up a young girl to be queen so that her influence could be used for his plan. He didn't need Esther for his plan to succeed. God could do whatever he wanted to save his people, just like Mordecai acknowledged, but he placed Esther in the right time and in the right place so that she could choose to join in. So Esther then goes on and she replies to her cousin and she says, hey, look, gather everybody up and just pray for me. Gather everybody up and pray for me because I'm gonna go go see the king. And she says this quote. She says, if I perish, I perish. In other words, she's saying, you know what? You're right. God placed me here for a reason. And yes, I could die from the king's rejection. Yes, I could die from being Jewish, but either way, like, man, I am in on God's plan. See, your family, your friends Your job, your neighborhood, your daily routine, your bank account, your hobbies, all your interactions and all that you own are not just some random collection of odds. God has raised you up to the right place at the right time to do something for his plan. He's raised you up at the right place and the right time to do something for his plan. It's not coincidence there is purpose behind your opportunity. You just have to choose to join in. See, God doesn't need you to do his work. He's God. He does whatever he wants to do. Nothing gets in his way. Nothing can surprise him. Nothing can stop him. God does as he pleases, and he says that what he pleases is when his people worship him as Lord and Savior, when his followers do justice in the world, when his people advocate for the abused and the hurting, when his children champion good and resist evil, we get the opportunity to be an ambassador for Jesus in this world because he has placed you and I right here, right now, to fulfill his plan. But we miss it. All the time, we miss it. That opportunity is right before us and yet we don't join in. And I think we miss it really for the same couple of reasons that Esther almost misses it right here. And I think the first one is that a lot of time we just don't pay attention. We don't pay attention that Esther, when she became queen, she was no longer one of the people. In fact, we see in the beginning of chapter four that her cousin Mordecai is out in the street and he is crying out and mourning because of the law that the king has passed that is going to kill him and kill his people. And Esther sends a word to him that basically says, Hey, what's going on? Why are you so upset? She has totally missed it because Esther is not paying attention. She's given this opportunity, lots of influence and her life is good. Look, I don't know exactly what Esther's mindset would have been right here, but I gotta think she wasn't paying attention and instead, man, she's just trying to live her best life. And so she doesn't even know the danger that's going on, let alone her opportunity that's before her. See, Jesus is constantly moving in your life. You work with that single parent who's still struggling to figure out things with their job and remote learning with their kid for a reason. You married into that family with tons of baggage for a reason. You got stimulus money that you didn't even need for a reason. Your kid joined that club or that team for a reason. God wants to use you to impact those around you, but you have to pay attention Somebody in your life is crying out in the middle of the street and you need to go see what's happening. Why? Because God wants you to join in. We miss it because we're not paying attention. I think the other reason we miss out on what God is doing is simply because of fear. Fear. See, Esther had risk and she almost missed it because of fear of that risk. She's between a rock and in a hard place, if she sees the king and he doesn't receive her, she's dead. If they find out that she's Jewish, she's dead. But maybe, just maybe, they won't find out. Maybe she can hide who she is, ignore who she is, ignore who she knows, focus, focus on other stuff, focus on things that keep her busy. I'm sure she had some sort of responsibility in her life that would keep her occupied, something that was safer, something that was easier, something that was more convenient to be a part of. I mean, after all, does it really affect her if nobody finds out? See, fear can be crippling. We work hard to make sure that our our families are safe, that our kids get a good education, to make sure there's food on the table, that our families get to experience fun things like, like camping and sports. And It's scary to risk any of that. It's scary to talk about my faith because If somebody doesn't like it, are they gonna tell HR? Will they yell at me? Will they judge me? Or even worse, will they call me judgmental? (laughs) Look, God doesn't promise that joining his plan isn't gonna have cost. It certainly will. It always has. But the cost is small when we value the things that God values. Do you trust that he actually has the best plan? Do you trust that he is your provider? That he is your protector? Do you want the same things that he wants? See, before this week, I had never heard of uh, Stefan Mando, and he seems like a pretty smart guy. Like, you don't win the lottery 14 times by chance, you win by paying attention and grabbing a hold when the opportunity is before you. And I'm sure he made some enemies that didn't like his winnings. And I'm sure people accused him of cheating. And I'm sure there was risk involved with using his money and other people's money. But I also wish I had seen the opportunity that he saw. I wish I had grabbed a hold of the risk like he did. Like, you don't accomplish things for God by chance. All throughout the Bible, God is working and moving and planning and he positions people in the right places at the right times and then he invites them to be a part of his plan. Some miss it. Some are too afraid. Some aren't paying attention. Some take the risk and join in. The beautiful thing is that God will succeed, period. He doesn't need us, but he wants us and he invites us to be a part of that plan. So if you keep reading through, we see that Esther goes on through a series of of crazy events and and these fun workings from God to save her people. And I'd encourage you uh, this week, spend some time. It's it's an easy read, it's a fun read through the book of Esther. There's a lot of great things happening. In fact, there's still a celebration uh, every year that they celebrate today called uh, Purim that is based on uh, God using Esther and Mordecai to save his people. And, and look, Esther and Mordecai weren't perfect. They had lots and lots of mistakes and issues. In fact, if you read through it, you'll, you'll begin to see that and you could even argue that they broke a lot of Jewish laws in the ways that, that they did things. They weren't perfect, but they were paying attention and they were willing to join in. Imagine if in spite of, of your imperfections and excuses and fear and, and whatever else, you just stopped and said, you know what, God, I'm in. I'm in, I, I don't know the whole thing. I don't know the outcome. I don't, I don't know the cost. I don't know what I have to offer, but look, I'll, I'll do it. I'll just do it. And people's lives would be changed. Your friends would be drawn to Jesus. Your coworkers begin to understand what real love looks like. Your family would be impacted by the power of God and who Jesus is. God already does incredible things every single day. Are you willing to join in? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, Esther and the example, Father, of, of joining in even when it's scary even when it's inconvenient, Father. And God, we thank you, Lord, that that you move in our lives every day, big things, big moments that we see all the time, but also small moments, God. Little things that you're working through, little things that you're doing, God, to position us in the right places at the right time so we can join in for your plan, God. So God, we're in. Whatever you have for us today, we're in. And we pray in Jesus' name.